Well, we're starting a new series this, uh, this week, running for the next three weeks, on plugging in, plugged in. What makes a church worth plugging into? I mean, why did you get up this morning instead of sleeping in? Why be here rather than the golf course? Why spend time with each other and reflecting on the scriptures rather than just simply reading the New York Times and having another cup of coffee in the quiet of your own home? Why do we stack these bricks on these, these corners? Why do we invest generation to generation? What makes our church purposeful? What's worth plugging into? Let me tell you a quick story about an old curmudgeon, a guy who uh, was in the church for many, many years but didn't really embrace or internalize the purpose of the church. He, um, he was interacting with a woman who really annoyed him, who was always talking about how um, that, that she had encounters with God that he didn't, that, uh, that she had a sense of his presence in her life, and that she, she recognized that, uh, that he could speak into her life in the quiet of her heart. And he decided he'd test this out and said, well, you know what, the next time that you have one of these uh, these quiet times with God, why don't you ask him for me what, uh, what I did uh, so wrong when I was 25? Now, see, this guy had been wrestling with, uh, with something horrible he had done when he was in his <laughs> mid-20s, and he had never really fully uh, embraced the, his own forgiveness. He had never really forgiven himself. He'd never really let go of it, and it was part of why he was so bitter was he was carrying around this unforgiveness. And um, he said, yeah, why don't you, why don't you uh, ask, ask God what, uh, what I did when, uh, when I was 25? And the next week, um, he ran into her again. He said, uh, well, did you, uh, did you ask him? And she said, yes, I did. He said, well, what did he say? She said, he said, I can't remember. That's kind of the heart of what we're about here. Reconciliation by forgiveness. That relationships are restored. That relationships are healed. That the heart of the universe is a person. The person of God. A personhood of God. And that he is able to restore us to a right relationship with him. So what does it take then to walk that out? What does it take to walk out the reconciliation of humankind to to God? What does it take to walk out reconciliation person to person? What does it take to be a church of purpose, a church on purpose, a church that has a heart of reconciliation? Let's take that question into, first, into 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Would you join with me by following along in your own Bibles? I encourage you this fall, if you don't have an English Standard Version Bible, then we'll be glad to supply you with one. I'd encourage you to bring your Bible and to, uh, to study along with, uh, with uh, me as I read. Starting with verse 11. 2 Corinthians 5, starting with verse 11. 
hear God's word this morning. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, in the way he's saying, if we're kind of out of our minds or foolish, it is for God. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who, through Christ, reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Let's pray together. Holy God, would you bless us now through your word, not only that we would understand it with our heads, but receive it with our hearts, that we may live it with our hands and our feet. In Jesus' name, amen. So for some of you, what makes church meaningful or purposeful is, you know, coming here and getting sort of your batteries recharged for a draining week. For some of you, it's music. For others, it may be your small group or your Sunday school class. For some of you, it's, it's the network of relationships. It's the social affiliation that, that gives you a sense of place and, and purpose. What makes church at the heart of it, the foundation of it, what makes it purposeful? It's reconciliation. It's a ministry of reconciliation. It's an experience of forgiveness that so affects you that your life has changed. You have a change of heart. You regard yourself no longer from a worldly point of view and others from a worldly point of view. It's reconciliation between us and God and therefore between us and each other. So what does it look like to walk that out? How do we, how do we champion reconciliation to make sure that, that what we're about here at First Presbyterian Church is something truly enduring and purposeful. Well, a couple of different ways. First, we champion orthodoxy, and second, we champion community. 
Now, that may not seem very exciting to you. Now, if I'm sitting there listening, I'm like, okay, now he's told me about reconciliation, and now he wants to talk about orthodoxy. I'm not sure what that, what does that mean? And that word seems kind of, maybe I'll go to sleep now. <clears throat> but see, to be champions of orthodoxy is simply to aim at what endures, at what's really real. To champion orthodoxy is to say there is a truth, there is a God, and, and, and we don't make him in our image. He's made us in him, his image, and so we need to be champions of, of the message of the gospel that originally came to the, the disciples so that what we're speaking and living and orienting our life around endures, isn't just the order of the day, the esprit de la corps, or just the cause that happens to be getting traction in our day and age. But we're orienting life around a sure foundation. That's what it means to have orthodoxy, straight teaching, straight opinions, orthodoxy, straight word. And so we need to orient our life around what endures. It, 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 uh, it makes me think of this, uh, this funny little story uh, that Ravi Zacharias, an apologist, he travels around and the, the world and speaks to college students. He speaks into this, this day and age of, of pluralism and postmodernism, of, of, of uh, this unsettled sense of is there any truth? Out there is, there, is there really something that is enduring? And he was at Ohio State University, and he, his host was driving him past the Wexler Center for the Arts. And he said, this is the country's first postmodern building. Its arch architecture is, is postmodern. And Robbie said, well, what does that mean? He said, well, if you were to go inside and, and tour around, you would see... Uh, hallways that just led to nowhere and staircases that were just sort of hanging there in the middle of the air, not, not really accessible and not really going anywhere. And, um, and he paused and he said, so what you're saying is that there's no, there's no design to it. There's no sense of, of, uh, of purpose or design to the building. And he said, yes, that's right. And Ravi said, well, I wonder if he did that with the foundation." Now imagine that. You're walking through the Wexler Center of Performing Arts and you begin to think, maybe the architect did do this with the foundation. Would you stay for the show? You see, there is an order to things and we know it. We know it at certain layers and we accept it. We assume and we hope that that, that all of these cinder blocks are stacked straight and that they're grounded on something that, that's firm enough to support the roof. We know uh, on certain levels that, that there's an order to things and that when we line up with, with the design of things that, that there is a peace and a human flourishing. Let's see what... What we're, what we're recognizing here in, in 2 Corinthians or what Paul is saying here is, is that the heart 
of the universe is a person. And, and to get our loves in order, to, in other words, as Augustine said, that, that really the, our problem is disordered love. And to get our loves in order is to build on a sure foundation in as much as we do build our own buildings on a sure foundation. And so it's, it's to recognize, so orthodoxy is to re- recognize first and foremost, there is a God, it's not me, it's not you, and we are called to order our lives around God. Therefore, verse 11 Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. The fear of the Lord, what does that mean? Does that mean we're cowering in the corner wondering what what, what God is like and what he's going to do to us? And is he going to zap us? Is he some great sheriff in the sky? No. The fear of the Lord, Solomon says, is the beginning of wisdom. And it's simply to have a sense that God is who he is, that he's revealed himself. And that we can know him, who he really is, not to make him in our own image, not to just cherry pick out of the scriptures what we like and what makes us feel comfortable. Not just to say, well, we we like what we know of Christianity so far and so we're just going to hold here and we're just going to be sort of socially conservative and just we're going to be champions of, of, of what our parents knew and what traditions held. No, orthodoxy is to say that there is There's a central enduring truth and that we need to continue to order and reorder our life around it. There's an old expression uh, that was part of the confessions at one point uh, called the church reformed and always reforming. So the the, the reformation uh, minds like Calvin and Luther and Knox, you know, they they said that, that to be a reformed church is to be a church reformed and always reforming. Well, in, in the mainline drift, all right, in the mainline drift, when I used to be a, a mainline Presbyterian, the drifting social mores of the day said that what that meant, the church reformed and always reforming, what that meant, that was code for something. It was a code. The church reformed and always reforming means let's get up to speed with the day and age. Let's make sure that what we're saying at at church is is highly relevant to the culture so that we will survive as a church. And so abandoned orthodoxy. But what they neglected, what people neglected when they would say that, and I heard many people say that, and that's what they meant by it. I heard many pastors say that. And that's what they meant by it. They meant code for let's be up to date. Let's embrace whatever's, whatever's shaken, all right? And so the church, instead of being the headlight of society, becomes the taillight of society. Or instead of leadership, you know, what, what you end up is a bunch of folks that are saying, well, here's the direction the culture is going. Let's run around to the front of it real quick. And then say, hey, let's go this way, people. It's not leadership. That's just sticking your finger into the wind. See, the rest of the phrase is, the church reformed and always reforming according to the word of God. There was a sense in the, 19th sense, in the 1950s that, that our culture was a consensus culture. 
You've heard people say it this way. Maybe your, your parents or your grandparents would say, you know, we used to be able to run our, around and, and, you know, if we got in trouble down here, the neighbor would, would hold us accountable and everybody had the same sense of, of, of morality and what was right and what was wrong. There was a sense of consensus there. And, you know, it was born out of uh, not just the, f- the fear of the Lord, but also a sense that, that God purposed the United States through the, the Second World War, having won uh, against the evils of, 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 of uh, fascism and having secured the world for democracy, that now we would settle down and, and everybody was sort of in a sense of agreement. And, and, and in a lot of ways, some of the buildings that you see here were built and, and a lot of the country and a lot of the institutions uh, that we know of today were built during that, that day. And, 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 and people went from going, like one-third of the people went to church on a Sunday to two-thirds of the people going and being a part of a church on Sunday. There was a, a consensus culture. And sometimes what we think and, and what you hear people saying these, this day and age is they idealize that, that decade and say, we need to get back to that and we need to fight in Congress and in the Senate and we need to fight culture in such a way that, that, that brings us back to this consensus culture. No. See, that, that, that is abandoning orthodoxy for just some cultural moment. It's abandoning orthodoxy for cultural or social conservatism. Instead, we need to understand what the wine is and what the wineskin is. We need to be able to know what we're about. What is the central message? How do we walk out reconciliation? By committing ourselves to the message that was the original message received by the church so that we are orienting our lives around God and not just cherry-picking out the parts that are comfortable to us about our Christianity. Ross Douthat uh, summarizes what I'm talking about in his book called Bad Religion, (laughs) How We Became a Nation of Heretics. His assumption is that when people abandon truth, they don't they don't, when people abandon truth, they don't believe nothing. They believe all kinds of things, almost anything. And here's what he says about orthodoxy. The way orthodoxy synthesizes the New Testament's complexities has forced churchgoers of every prejudice and persuasion to confront a side of Jesus that cuts against their own assumptions. A rationalist has to confront the supernatural Christ. A pure and mystic has to confront the worldly, eat, drink, and be merry Jesus with his wedding feasts and fish fries. A Reagan conservative has to confront the Jesus who railed against the rich. A post-sexual revolution liberal has to deal with the Jesus who had us think more clearly about what we're doing with our mind's eye. There's something to please almost everyone in orthodoxy, but also something to challenge everyone as well. If we're gonna be a church on purpose, a purposeful church, we need to understand what it means to cut straight the word of God. Second Timothy 3.15. 
cut straight the word of truth. That, that cutting straight is like a surgeon's knife. When a surgeon cuts, needs to make sure he's cutting just the right thing, right? That's what it means to recognize what is culture versus what is truth, what is enduring versus what is just simply a social moray of the day. We need to be a people of orthodoxy if we're going to be a purposeful church. Second, we need to be people not only who champion orthodoxy and understand what that means, we also need to be a people who champion community and understand what that takes. A people who champion community are a people who press into relationships that are enduring, that recover from injury and insult, that, that invest in a way that speaks the whole of our church, First Presbyterian Church, here in this time and place. How do our relationships and reconciliation and perseverance with one another, how does that speak into our age? Ah, oh, it speaks the opposite of what you're hearing today. What if we simply just got that right? If people could look at our relationships and make the connection to our gospel and see, wow, in an age of pluribus, look at all that unum. In an age of division, look at all that unity. In an age where every little opinion triggers somebody and it sends them into some kind of complete and utter nonsensical reaction, here are people persevering in their relationships. What if we just got that right? Robert Putnam wrote a book called Bowling Alone a number of years ago, and, and in it he, he coined, well, he kind of recaptured a term from the early 20th century uh, called social capital, and he, and he named it different kinds of social capital. It's like, you know, currency. It's like, you know, you, you've got a dollar bill in your pocket, you can spend it. Well, there's a certain kind of social capital that we build up by being, by being a church, and we can do stuff with that social capital. And he talked about a couple of different kinds of social capital. One is bonding capital, bonding capital. And bonding capital is, you know, the, the benefits of bonding capital you saw yesterday when, um, when the First Presbyterian Church uh, of uh, Bainbridge could not hold everyone for the uh, Grimsley service. What a, what a message to a family. What a great encouragement to Mike and to to the rest of his family after the death of his brother. Bonding capital. But there's also bridging capital. And Putnam talks about bridging capital as, as a way of, of taking the, the, the strength that we have as a church and extending that strength outward for the benefit of people who aren't here. And you can see that in the video that we saw earlier and the way that we extend ourselves even into a foreign country, a foreign nation, Kenya. You can see it in the ways that we partner, you know, that 10% that, that of our budget, our, of our operating budget, just goes locally here and, uh, and supports uh, local partners. That's a bridging kind of 
capital. But here's the caution. Sometimes we want to bet on the, our favorite horse, or sometimes we want to sort of cherry pick out of community, uh, out of Christian community, the parts of it that we like and sort of dispense with the rest as though that were possible in the long run. You see, doing local church is tough. It's hard. I get to say that because I do it every day, right? It is a difficult thing to be in the middle of all these relationships. It's also a privilege, don't get me wrong. But what I'm saying to you is that everyone needs to take a finger and put it under the table and lift. We need everybody. If this place is going to really hum the way it could hum, then everyone has to be involved in it. Everyone has to be involved in it in a way that says, this is the trunk of the tree. And, and maybe we've got some amazing parachurch organizations that we love and we want to invest in, but we have to recognize those are branches. And if you, if you do away with the trunk or if you weaken the trunk, the branches will wither. And sometimes I, I get the feeling that, 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 that some of us just really like this particular specialty over here. And so we're just going to, you know what, we're just going to sort of circumvent the church and we're just going to invest ourselves over here. That thing over there wouldn't exist without the trunk. Now, I love our partners, and I have been a part of parachurch organizations, and I personally support, over and above what we give to this church, I personally support certain parachurch organizations too, but over and above. In terms of time and energy that I put into it, in terms of, of checks that I write, because why? Because those branches wouldn't exist without the local church. One of the, you know, and and I, was, I, was, I was courted for a couple of different ministries outside of the local church. And I was very tempted to be a part of those. And, and that would have been fine, but I wasn't called to that. I was called to come back to the place where I felt like the, the institution was, was sort of getting crusty. I mean, I thought the local church was really getting crusty, and I was bored growing up in church. And I was annoyed with a lot of what we were doing. And so much of it was not because there was something wrong with what was going on, but because I needed to grow up. I needed to grow into some of what was going on. I needed to develop ears to hear and eyes to see. I needed to stop thinking that it was all about me getting some sort of particular warm fuzzies that Sunday and recognizing that we're going somewhere together. And it requires a certain set of eyes to see one another no longer from a worldly point of view, to see that, that we're called to be ambassadors, that, that we actually have a citizenship in the kingdom of God, but we're living out life here. It's like if you, if you go to a foreign country and you're an expatriate and they've, they've asked you to bring your expertise to help them do something in that land, you are actually a citizen of some other country and you're living out your days in a foreign land. That's what it takes to develop the kind of community that we're capable of, 
to see one another as citizens of the kingdom of God. No longer seeing the old person. No longer just saying, you know what, I know that that person has made a mistake and, you know, that's just who they are and they're always going to be that way. No, to have hopeful lenses when we look at each other. To recognize that, that we all, we all are somewhere along the way. I was simply amazed when in Kenya at the end of of the worship service that dedicated the church you saw uh, in the video, that a man with three wives stood up in front of the church. Yeah, yeah, you heard me right. <laughs> a man with three wives stood up in front of the church. He looked really tired, first of all. I couldn't resist that. I'm sorry. I just got myself in so much trouble on so many different levels. But here's a guy who's been living his life in a way that is not lined up with our orthodox faith. And yet, and yet, he was now investing himself and willing to stand before the church, now knowing that the way he had been living his life wasn't right. He knew it. They knew it. And yet he stood up because he was the one who gave the land for the church. And he was the one who, who wrote the first check for ministry in that church. He was somewhere along the way. He wasn't going to fix all the things that he had broken. He wasn't called necessarily to, 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 to fix all of that before he got started. And so that's what I want to say to you this morning. What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for to have a purposeful investment in this place? Are you waiting to get it 100%? Not going to happen. We're all somewhere between 0 and 100%. I want to invite you over the next few weeks to consider your church your church, what's it going to take for you to be champions of orthodoxy and community this year? Let's pray together. Holy God, and we thank you for the ways that you have shown yourself to be faithful in the past and the ways that you present yourself to us again and again, even even tangibly on this table. And so we pray that as we receive from this bread and from this cup, that we might experience a magnificent exchange of our sin for your righteousness. In Jesus' name, amen.